Well, thank you. Uh, thank you for being here. Uh, if you're new to uh, church or to the Bible, uh, this is a part of the service where we um, have a sermon, a message out of a biblical text. And over the past, uh, I don't know, eight or ten weeks, we've been working through uh, a letter called Jude. It's in the New Testament, and so if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn there. Uh, if you're, I remember my first time being in church not having any idea where any of the books were, and I got to know the table of contents page really well. So let me just give you a, a helpful way to find Jude. If you go all the way to the very end of your Bible, um, there's a, the last book of the Bible. It's called Revelation, and then if you make a left turn, just one book right before is the little letter of Jude. It's not really a book, it's just a letter, but the Bible is comprised, it's not just one book, it's a library of 66 books. There are how many books in the Old Testament? Oh, I can't hear you. There's 39 books in the Old Testament, leaving how many in the New Testament? 27, good. Old Testament, New Testament, that's the dividing line. Uh, the Old Testament describes God's redemptive interaction with people before Jesus was born. The New Testament starts with Jesus' birth and describes the 90 or so years of Jesus' ministry and uh, the church beginning. Um, the Old Testament covers a, a several thousand year period. 4,000, 3,000 year period, all the way from creation. If you have a young earth viewpoint, it's a 6,000 year viewpoint. And then the New Testament, uh, the Gospels and Paul's letters, that only covers a sliver of 90 years. So uh, uh, one, the Old Testament covers a very large portion, the New Testament a very small portion. And if you're trying to dial in Jude, Jude is written in the mid-60s, um, maybe 70s. And uh, Jude is just a very small letter written by the brother of Jesus, uh, who also was a brother, uh, of course, of James, Jesus' other brother, and a leader in the new church. And uh, he wrote to a specific community of Christ followers in the Roman world, telling them, beware. Uh, people have crept into your church, and they aren't believers. They, they've come into your fellowship, and they are masquerading as though they were Christ followers, but they denied Jesus. That's verse 4. They denied Jesus. So that means they're not believers. They deny Jesus as their master and Lord. And they, not only do they deny Jesus, but they've come into your church and they are promoting sensuality. They are perverting the grace of God, saying, you know, aren't you glad for God's grace and mercy and forgiveness? We can live however we want to. We can indulge in whatever immorality or bad behavior that we want to, and Jesus is like a backstop. You know, the, the ball will never get past. Our sin is always forgiven, and we can therefore live any way we want to. And, and Jude is saying uh, that this is a damning, false teaching that within the church we have to contend for the faith. We have to contend for the faith. Well, at this point in our sermon series here, we're almost to the end. We only have today and next week in Jude. We're looking at verses 17 uh, through 25 last week and this week and next week, um, but we're really just zooming in on verses 22 and 23 today. But just for context, we'll read Jude 1, uh, Jude 17 through 25, and um, let's read that together. That's probably the best way to go forward here. Starting in verse 17. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. All right, pause there. Um, Peter, we looked at this last week, in 2 Peter 3 said, there will be people coming into your church. It was a prediction. But Jude says, they are in your church. So Jude wrote a very short time after Peter. Um, Paul in Acts 20 said that I know that after I leave, wolves will come into the church and they won't spare the flock. Jesus said an enemy will come into the church and he will um, sow weeds among the wheat. Meaning that there will always be the presence of false believers, false converts. Um, people will always be in and out of the church who um, are 
have uh, m- malicious purposes, right? People visit churches for a lot of reasons. Not everybody here is a Christian, right? It's good for you to know that because you might hear something in the parking lot or somebody might wave to you you know, in a rude way uh, or be mean to you. And you just need to know that not everybody who comes to church is a Christ follower. Not everyone is born again. Not everyone is redeemed. People visit churches for a variety of reasons. Some come because they're pursuing and they're seeking and uh, they, they want to know if they're examining the message of Jesus. That's a great reason uh, for a person to visit a church or to tune in online to a, a worship service, to hear a Bible message, to explore whether the Bible has any truth or relevance for their life. Um, there are a variety of reasons why people come. That's not what Jude's talking about. Jude is talking about people who are knowingly deceptive and intentionally malicious coming into the church to scatter and to sow discord and to be divisive. That's what Jude's talking about. And he's saying, they're the ones who come into your church. Look at verse 19. It is these who cause divisions. Worldly people devoid of the Spirit. All right, So they don't have the Holy Spirit residing within them. They're devoid of the Spirit. Therefore, they don't have the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, right? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. You probably heard a song in Sunday school or something like that. Um, There's also other fruits of the Spirit that says you will reflect Jesus. You will grow in humility. You will be more servant-minded. Your knowledge and love for the truth will expand. Your worship for Jesus, uh, the, 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 the songs that you sing, the compassion, the mercy, the forgiveness that you give, all those things reflect a person filled with the Spirit, but not the people. They're devoid of the Spirit. They are divisive people. They try to get factions in the church and tear people apart. So these are just helpful ways that you can understand who you're talking to if you have such an occasion. I'm not saying it's here in our church, um, but I'm just saying in the church in general. Okay. Then he gives some instructions. We covered this last week. If you're going to contend for the faith, you have a personal responsibility And then you have a corporate responsibility. So let's see that. Verse 20, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. That was last week's sermon describing your personal obligations to contend for the faith by keeping yourselves in the love of God, building yourselves up through spiritual disciplines, um, praying in the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit, waiting for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's your personal obligation. That was last week. But Jude also says if you're going to contend for the faith in the church, that there's a, a corporate responsibility. You have an obligation to one another all around the room. You have a responsibility to each other. And so Jude's going to tell you what to do for each other. Have mercy on those who doubt. Verse 22. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. Three people, three groups of people. um, We're going to talk about how we do those three things in the church today. Let's finish um, with the doxology, the rest of our text today. Verse 24 says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Back to verses 22 through 23. That's what we're going to focus on, our corporate responsibility, our our ability to minister to one another Presumably after those false teachers, after the weeds have been cut away or left or dealt with or contended for, they made a mess. They came into the church and had negative influence. They were influencing people toward immorality, toward uh, false teaching, toward denying Jesus as their Lord and Master, and they they made a mess. Uh, I grew up in Oklahoma, and in Oklahoma we have around 600 tornadoes a year. Um, You can see them forming. Uh, Oftentimes the weather conditions are such that they can predict where and when they will come, but they leave a mess. I remember we had lived here a couple years 
Um, and we had a mission team here from Moore, Oklahoma, known as Tornado Alley, really in Oklahoma. Moore seems to get hit more than any other town um, in the last two decades. We had a mission team from Moore, and weeks before they came, they had a big tornado, an F5 tornado. Um, F5 is the Fujiyaka scale that tells you the severity of the wind damage and the wind speed, and F1 is, a, you know, you could go play in an F1. I'm not, you can't, don't do that. But an F1 is not a big, you know. An F5, though, is wind speeds exceeding 180 miles per hour, I think. Um, they had just experienced an F5 in their town, and one of them, one of the leaders of that, was telling me, uh, you know, some of the cleanup, and it leaves a huge mess. It destroys houses and homes. And, and he said one of his neighbors um, walked out onto um, his driveway and noticed that his fishing boat was gone. Picked up, taken away by the storm. And as he walked further into the neighborhood, looking for his boat... Um, he began to see more and more damage and a bigger trail. And finally, he came to one of his uh, friend's house, a few houses down, and his entire second floor had been blown off. They asked each other, are they okay and everything? And he said, uh, have you seen my fishing boat? And he said, no, have you seen my pool table? <laughs> it had blown his entire second floor off and picked up the pool table and distributed it somewhere. They find debris sometimes hundreds of miles away. A storm can pick it up, chop it up, and disperse it all around. It just leaves a massive mess. Picking up the pieces after a destructive storm passes through is similar to Jude's instruction here in that these people have come into the church and have had a destructive negative influence. They've made a real mess of things in the fellowship. And in the process of that, some people have started to doubt their salvation, or started to doubt God's word, or started to doubt the things that they knew because these people came in with influence and they came in with um, a free lifestyle and they came in um, sort of, you know, with all their freedoms in the world and also with Christian language and it confused some people in the fellowship. So Jude says to have mercy on those who are doubting now that they've left. They also made a mess in that some are needing to be snatched out of a fire. We'll talk about that. And to a third group, they were to have mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh, meaning that some people were so influenced by those false teachers that they likewise indulged in sinful behavior. We're going to get to that in just a minute as well. But I want you to listen and evaluate yourself and evaluate the congregation as you listen to the sermon around the question of mercy. How can the church be a merciful place for those who struggle with doubts and for those who are in, entangled in sin's influence? Previously, people, um, their common story is, I was hurt by the church or the church wounded me in some way, and they leave and go to another church, having been wounded by a church, that doesn't always mean that that church was at fault. Sometimes a church can be perceived as unloving when they are trying to care about the removal of sin or false doctrine, and a person can feel like their feelings are hurt, even though a church might have had their best interest at heart, trying to remove sin or destructive behavior. A person can feel hurt from that, but, but oftentimes people don't perceive the church as a merciful place. So we want to understand how can the church be a merciful place for those who struggle with doubts or for those who struggle with sin? What does it look like to have mercy? Okay, it, It's relevant for now uh, because you know, it was just about a year ago that um, we were meeting without masks, um, without divisions of services, and, and uh, things changed in a matter of weeks. I think it was mid-March, March 15th or so, that we stopped meeting as a church. We stopped meeting from mid-March all the way through uh, sometime in May. And it wasn't until May that we stopped recording sermons and putting them on YouTube live or something like that, and you having to sit around your living room 
That was a really rough stretch, right? Um, Those stressful conditions of the pandemic and our culture's response to them uh, squeezed people in ways and caused a reaction. And the reaction was whatever spiritual energy and um, and, and, um, attention that you had given to yourself and um, given to others, that... Um, that attention was divided all of a sudden. All of a sudden, it took more of your own energy and attention just to keep your own faith together. You were squeezed, you struggled, you experienced difficulties, and, and all of a sudden, the margin that you had to care for others and the opportunity that you had to care for others. You, you used to be able to come in here and you could see somebody and they would say, hey, where were you last week? We missed you. And, and there was sort of an accountability that said, all right, it's good for me to be in the fellowship. And that was a good reminder. And somebody's hugging you and somebody's checking on you. But, but during that time, we lost some of that ability. And so it also squeezed people financially. It squeezed people in their family relationships politically there was some I don't know if you know this but there were some political strains last year right newsflash right well all of those things worked in a divisive um, way in which it, it destroyed the fellowship and the and people just trying to keep their own head above water felt like it was difficult enough to keep themselves in the faith and there was less margin to go out and care for other people that that may not be true for everybody but it was true in some general sense and the, the, the problem, of course, with that is that, that here we sit and there are people who have not returned to church. And they may even be sitting at home right now thinking, no one pursued me. No one came after me. No one called and came and came together. And I just wanted to acknowledge the reality that for many people, it was just enough to keep themselves in the faith and to keep themselves walking with Jesus, and to keep themselves in the Word, and to keep themselves in prayer, and the allocation of spiritual resources was diverted to the first part, which was last week's sermon, building yourself up in the most holy, praying in the Holy Spirit, um, keeping yourselves in the love of God. But, but Jude knows no distinction. Jude acknowledges that there is both a personal responsibility and a corporate responsibility. You need to keep yourself in the love of God, but you also need to have uh, relationships within the church that are accountable, that are structured, that build others up, that check on others, that care for others, um, and it's been a difficult time. But the biggest point of this passage, the posture that you must have toward each other is a merciful posture. So let's define mercy. That's the point of the message today. Be a merciful people, those who display, uh, those who receive mercy, display mercy. Let's define mercy right up front here. There are several Hebrew and Greek terms that help us understand biblical mercy. The Old Testament, uh, the 39 books of the Old Testament were written in Hebrew. The New Testament was written in a different language, Greek and a smattering of Aramaic. But for the most part, Greek and Hebrew are the two languages of the Bible. And we go back and we translate, um, we translate manuscripts that have been discovered over 100,000 fragments and portions of Scripture, the largest corpus body of material in ancient um, literature is Old Testament, New Testament Scripture. Uh, and we translate all those manuscripts and fragments, and we get the translations into English today. But several Hebrew and Greek terms lie behind our English term mercy. You may say, oh, I can recognize mercy, but I don't know that I could put it into words. I know when I've experienced mercy, and I know when I feel a need to to get mercy. But it's hard for us because um, a lack of mercy is natural to our fallen human condition. We just frankly are not a very merciful people. We get mad at people who fall. We struggle with people who uh, doubt and who the experience is difficult because we think we're kind of back to back, shoulder to shoulder, elbow to elbow, working together to um, spread the gospel and to build the kingdom and to be a part of the ministry. But, But when somebody drops out of that formation and they struggle with doubts, oftentimes we're not merciful. Oftentimes we leave people behind. 
A lack of mercy is more natural to the human condition, but our response has to be merciful. So what does that mean? The chief Hebrew term is hesed. You've probably heard that word if you've been in church for a very long time. It describes the steadfast love of the Lord that never ceases. It is a covenantal commitment from God to his people that says, I will never let go of you. It is a faithful, loyal, I'm committed to you. I'm kind of your ride or die. Like we're together through this thick and thin. And if I've redeemed you, I will preserve you and save you to the end. It is the God's stance toward you as one of everlasting, loving kindness, faithfulness, and um, loyalty to his people, to his children, that he will not deny his own. He will preserve you and hold you if you are in Christ. And that's a beautiful word. Hesed. I mean, know it. Look it up. There are psalms written. There are songs written. There are occasions when hesed is used to describe the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. And it is a sincerely beautiful doctrine that believers cherish. Um, The New Testament uses a couple of other words. Mercy is most often used by a word called elios uh, in one form or another. Um, another word is splagna, right? It's a crazy word. We remembered splagna in first year Greek um, because it means guts. Guts, splagna sounds like a guts kind of word, doesn't it? Right? What's the kind of word? Is it omenomapia or whatever it is that, that sounds like what it means? I don't know if that's a thing in Greek. I probably just... Confused everybody. Uh, I shouldn't let my mind take rabbit trails. I should have not taken that exit uh, off the highway here. Oops, I can assure you it wasn't in my notes. Um, But splagna described guts, and it really described the fluttering of guts that you feel in compassion towards somebody. It was such a deep-seated word. Hebrew recognizes sometimes the seed of emotion uh, as the heart, but also as described as the guts the interior of a person, because you feel things in your stomach, don't you? If you get nervous, you sometimes feel it in your stomach. You get afraid, you can feel that in your stomach. And that's, that's this idea of splagna, when it's, those emotions are directed with compassion and pity and mercy. Now, this is beautiful. Jesus describes himself as having splagna, having compassion. It's his, Jesus's stance is one of compassion and, and pity toward people. Uh, when he was going around teaching, he said, I have compassion for these people because they are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. If you want to know who Jesus is, one of the embodiments of Christ is this idea of compassion, and it's translated as mercy, okay? So I'm taking way too long already. I'm not even into the stuff I'm supposed to be into, but, but mercy is the big picture of the way we're supposed to be toward each other. As we contend for the faith, we together within the body of Christ are supposed to be compassionate and merciful toward each other and directed specifically in three camps. Number one, look back at verse 22, have mercy on those who doubt. Now right away, this reminded me of John the Baptist. Now you probably remember who John the Baptist was. Uh, This was Jesus's cousin, He was described as the forerunner. He was the road paver. He was there to come in advance of Jesus and to make the road smooth and clear. If you're a football fan, uh, you know, if they throw a screen before they set up the screen, they need to get the hogs out on the sides, right? They need to get the big guys out on the flats, out on the side. And once the big guys are in place, the little running back or the little receiver can kind of fill in behind them and the big guys clear the path. John the Baptist was the path clearer for Jesus, the one who prepared the way. By the time Jesus was baptized, John the Baptist had an enormous following, a massive crowd of people. Soldiers, not even Israelites, but soldiers were coming out into the wilderness, finding John the Baptist and saying, what should we do? How should we repent? John the Baptist tells them, you know, be content with your wages and don't extort people. Uh, He's telling people how to repent and he's amassing a massive following, a group of people who are coming to be baptized. 
All these regions are coming out to John the Baptist. And then Jesus comes to be baptized. And slowly but surely, the attention is rightfully placed on Jesus. And what does John the Baptist do when his disciples say, Teacher, more people are going to him than us. We're losing our momentum. How can our organization kind of thrive again? And John the Baptist said, no, none of that. He must increase and I must decrease. Jesus described John the Baptist in Matthew 11 as um, among those born of women, he is the greatest. And yet you might be surprised to know that John the Baptist went through a period of struggling with doubt. He went through a painful set of circumstances that prompted him to send messengers to Jesus and they said, quote, are you the Messiah who was to come or should we be looking for another? Listen to this in Matthew 11. When John heard in prison, he was preaching that Herod the Tetrarch or Herod should not have had his brother's wife. So John the Baptist was preaching righteousness and Herod locked him up. And while he was in prison, John the Baptist, awaiting execution, his head would be removed um, in in a few passages here. Um, While he was waiting for that, his circumstances got him down. And he just began to doubt. And so he sent messengers to Jesus. Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? Doubt is a very difficult bog to go it through. If you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress, he describes going through different parts of a Christian's life. But doubt is one of those particularly painful periods. John Bloom in an Desiring God article said, what John hadn't expected was to be tormented by the oppressive doubts and fears. Since the Jordan, John had not doubted that Jesus was the Christ, but stuck alone in the putrid cell, he was assaulted by horrible, accusing thoughts. What if I had been wrong? What if there had been many false prophets and Jesus was just one of them? What if he had led people astray? What if Jesus was a false messiah? So far, Jesus' ministry might not have looked like what John imagined the Messiah to look like. Could this imprisonment be God's punishment on John for pointing to a false Messiah? John Bloom is just, the, uh, you know, fiction here, writing this could have been what was going through his mind. He said, it felt as if God had left him and the devil himself had taken his place. He tried to recall all these prophecies and signs that seemed so unclear to him at the time but it was difficult to think straight and comfort just wouldn't stick to his soul. Doubts buzzed around his brain like the flies around his face. Doubt is a cruel tormentor and oftentimes it resides just within your own mind. Oftentimes it's even hard to share how and why your doubts may not even seem to be logical or reasonable in light of all that God has done around you or in light of all that God has done in your life. Um, but doubts are those things that cause people to waver. Some of your translations may even say waver, going back and forth, believing wholeheartedly, like the guy who says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. <laughs> right? um, that sort of tension is a, a present in those who doubt. Those apostates, those heretics, those scoffers, those invaders who came into the church and made a mess, they caused real believers to experience the period of doubt. As a result of that, Jude says, allow splagna, right? Allow mercy, elios, compassion to come alongside those who doubt. For those who are walking in the strength of their faith and not struggling with doubt, come alongside those who are. That's a position of uh, mercy toward those who doubt. Have you struggled with doubt before? Have you ever walked through a season, maybe not a lifetime or or maybe not several years, but have you struggled with a season of pervasive doubts that cause you to question even the goodness of God in the circumstances that you find yourself in or the salvation that God has purchased for you on the cross? 
The stance of the church should be to come alongside you and to encourage your faith, to walk with you through your doubts and to gently and lovingly minister to you as you allow them. But the the prison of doubt is often that you won't let people in. There's nothing anybody can do about that uh, if someone won't allow others to come into that. But working from a believer's standpoint, it's our desire to have mercy on those who doubt. Let's look at the second category. Um, save others by snatching them out of the fire. Save others by snatching them out of the fire is uh, verse 23. And, and there's some questions that come from this. What does this mean? Oftentimes, fire in Scripture describes judgment and hell, the ultimate end of days kind of judgment. Um, so is Jude saying that um, we should save those who are, should be snatched out of the fire, meaning a hell fire reference. That's a judgmental evangelistic reading of this text. But let me give you an alternate text, and I won't go into all the reasons why there are grammatical issues that cause commentators and scholars to have uh, dual readings of this text. I'm just, I just summarized hours of reading for you. You're welcome. But there are a couple of options here. Snatch those from the fire of eternal judgment, meaning an evangelistic approach toward those who don't believe. Or, does snatch from the fire mean snatching believers from a fire of falling into sexual or sinful immorality or sensuality as those false teachers had done, that they are very close on the verge of falling, not away from salvation, but falling into a sinful pattern. Two options. Let's explore each briefly, okay? Some commentators suggest that this is solely evangelistic, which means we are talking about unbelievers in the church who are on the verge of walking away from the influence of these false teachers. It's very likely that could be it. And so Jude's encouragement to the believers is to have mercy on them by going after them evangelistically, sharing the gospel with them. Now, now doesn't this demonstrate the beauty and the love of God that those false teachers who had come in and messed things up, that now the believer's response is to go after them evangelistically. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that a beautiful picture that God would, the people who meant harm and damage within the body of Christ, that God would then immediately turn around and say, now here's the gospel. And here's the good news that you can be saved from this way of living, that there would be an evangelistic pursuit. And I can see this um, as a means of, of application for this text, because haven't you and I known people who walked away from Jesus? Uh, I can remember one couple um, in the early days of our church plant, um, just pouring out, I used to journal prayers and just pouring out pages of ink, praying for their salvation, praying for their soul, praying for them. And, and in the years since, they have completely walked away from faith and from church and from everything. And and that wells up within me splagna, okay? That wells up within me a compassion and a pity that my friends would be saved. That they would come to the knowledge of Jesus knowing that they walked away from something that was not salvation. They walked away from a church subculture or from a dangerous evangelical understanding of what the church is. They didn't walk away from the legitimate salvation in Jesus. And so I would want them to be saved. That could be one way in which we could take this. Be evangelistic. Be merciful in your evangelism and sharing the gospel with people who have fallen away. But here's a second reading. A second reading is to snatch believers from a fire of falling into sinful immorality or sensuality. For this, let's get some insight from Zechariah 3. I can probably bet that you've heard on one finger the times in the past that somebody has said, turn to Zechariah 3, right? You may not even know where Zechariah is, and that's all right. But if you go to Matthew, Zechariah is two books to the left. Uh, Matthew is the beginning of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John are the Gospels. If you go backward, you'll find Malachi. And then if you go backward one more, you'll find the little book of Zechariah, often uh, confused in your outline of memorization with Zephaniah split by Haggai, right? I'm just giving you names in case you are looking for baby names in the future. Um, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah. 
Malachi. We're going to look at Zechariah 3. And this is going to give us insight into what Jude was thinking when he wrote this. Zechariah 3, the prophet Zechariah has a vision of Joshua the high priest. And Joshua the high priest is foul. He's, he's dirtied his garments. The scripture is going to use a phrase that describes excrement on your inner robes, right? Scripture can sometimes be PG-13, R-rated, and, and they didn't shy away, oftentimes the prophets, of using very um, picture, very clear images of what sin describes. So listen for this. Z- Joshua the high priest. This is, a, this is the one who goes into the, the most holy place to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. This is probably the holiest guy you could think of, but listen to... Joshua the high priest in his state. Zechariah 3, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? What's a brand? It's just a stick that was in the fire. And Satan is standing in judgment, accusing Joshua. Look at verse 3. Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. That's the picture, the graphic picture I shared with you earlier. Joshua is in either an unredeemed state that God has had mercy on by plucking him as a brand from the fire and saying, I will save this one. Or Joshua was in the covenant community of Christ or the covenant community of Israel and had stained his garments by living in immorality. Uh, So that's kind of where we're trying to get to what Jude is thinking here. But listen to the beauty of this. Verse four, the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him, he said, behold, I've taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Now listen, you won't have mercy on anybody if you don't see yourself like Joshua. If you don't see yourself as a brand plucked from the fire of judgment, if you don't see yourself as being clothed in the filthy garments of your own sin, no matter how moral you think you are, you, you think you're a moral person that God should uh, let you into heaven because of your good works. You are described in Isaiah, it says that your righteousness, your works are, are like filthy garments to me. None of us are righteous before God. Romans 3.23 says there's not one righteous. All of us are clothed in the filth of our own excrement, biblically speaking. That's a terrible picture of sin, no matter how moral and clean you think you are compared to the next guy. But the gospel is this, that when your accuser stands before you, telling you how dirty you are, and you're standing before the judge of all the earth, he can say to those who are redeemed in Christ, this is a stick I pulled out of the fire, and I'm going to clothe him with the righteousness of Jesus Christ because of the work of the cross that Jesus did. Now you won't have mercy if you don't see yourself like Joshua the high priest is pictured here. You will be a not compassionate, you will be a legalistic, hateful, judgmental person that if anybody in the church struggles, your fury and judgmentalism will come down on them unless you can see yourself like Joshua, someone clothed in the filth of your own sin, standing before a holy God with the accuser at your side. Unless you're clothed with the righteousness of Christ, you'll never be able to do this. That's a picture of all of us, right? We all need the grace of God to remove our filthy garments and clothe us in righteousness. Amen? And who among us haven't been baptized and the water there signifying the filth of our sin being washed off so that we may be pure and holy before God's eyes? Let's close with the second, uh, the, the last group. Um, <clears throat> in the final group, we are to the third group of people, we are to show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. We are, to, we are to recognize that there's not just a group of people who are struggling with doubts as a result of the tornado of false teachers who 
infiltrated. Some struggle with doubts. Some are going to struggle by really wanting to walk into that or to be evangelized as a result of that. But the third group of people are those who are stained by the flesh. Can we just acknowledge the reality that sincere believers will stumble and fall into sin? Can we just acknowledge that together? Doesn't that just release the pressure valve for you to have to walk in here and to play this kind of church game that says, everything's good, I'm good, everything's fine, I'm not walking in sin, I'm okay. Isn't that that a pressure release to acknowledge that we all stumble from time to time and there are provisions within the gospel for that? 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Um, In James 5, 16, confess your sins one to another and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayers of a righteous person are powerful and effective as they are working. Um, In Matthew um, 18, the process of church discipline, that if you see your brother caught in sin, go to him one-to-one and confront him about his destructive, dangerous sin. And if he repents, then you've won him over. But if he doesn't, take two or three other brothers or sisters in Christ along with you. And then together go plead with that brother or sister in Christ to repent of this particular sin that's going to destroy you. For your own good, we're pleading with you. And then if they don't listen to you, present it before the church. And if they won't listen to even to the church, then disfellowship that person so that maybe out there, outside of the church, they may learn that sin has a destructive pattern. But doesn't that just show you that there are provisions within the gospel and and, and a, a process for restoration? Listen, you are not too far gone. Satan would have you believe that if you're stuck in a sin right now, that you've lost your salvation and there's no use pursuing Christ, no use coming to church, no use reading scripture, no use praying, that you're a lost cause, but the gospel says that a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. That means that if your faith is hanging by by a thread, if there is no fire left within you, it's just smoke, God will not reach over and snuff you out, but he will gently, lovingly fan that flame, that fire of faith back into existence. And that's the beauty of the gospel. And it's also the beauty that you don't have to walk in here acting like you have it all together. You don't have to be polished and put together. You can be vulnerable and broken like the rest of us. You can find within the fellowship of God's um, redeemed community brothers and sisters in Christ to confess your sin to and to walk with through doubts and struggles and pains and difficulties you don't have to have it all together that's a subculture of Christianity that can just go away the days need to be over when you're worried to throw your trash out that somebody's going to see something that you did and you have to present yourself as polished and perfect before other believers that you can't come in here and be a little bit vulnerable in describing the, the experiences that have broken you and the sins that have entangled you and the struggles that you're having. This is to be a merciful healing place. Not a place of judgment. Not a place of condemnation for the uh, sincerely redeemed he describes those who have been stained, or those stained like the ones that Zechariah was stained. That means believers will have walked into uh, immorality and bad behavior, sinful behavior, terrible behavior, and that we are to hate the sin that they committed while maintaining a posture of love and grace and compassion and mercy toward the sinner. And that's a hard balance for us in our flesh. It's a hard balance for us to maintain in the Spirit, quite frankly. But in our own flesh, we don't stand a chance to demonstrate mercy and grace to those who are stumbling. Especially if they are stained. Some of you feel stained. But aren't you glad for the cross of Christ that says, though your sins were as scarlet, they shall be white as snow? That your sins can be completely forgiven and made new in Christ. And the church should be a process of helping you experience that redemption. But for a believer, there is a reality to this, and that is to walk towards somebody who is stained in their flesh with fear. With fear. Why is that? We are to be afraid because sin has a contaminating effect. There is a way in which a believer can go and help another believer and rather than rescuing them can also be pulled into the same or a different sin or vice. There is to be a fear, a healthy fear. 
I can maybe best illustrate it this way. When in 1998 or so, I worked at a summer camp, a Christian summer camp in uh, Houston, and I had to come three or four weeks early to get trained in CPR. We also worked with um, children with epilepsy, and so we had to learn all kinds of health um, procedures and policies, ways to help and to serve in this way. And and in the lifeguard portion of the training, um, they said something that seemed counterintuitive. When you see someone thrashing in the water and they're drowning and you dive in, do not get too close to them. Why? Because the person who is drowning and thrashing about in the water, they don't see you in any other way but as a a life preserver. And they will latch on to you and they will grip you and they will pull the two of you down together. And oftentimes the rescuer also needs to then be rescued as uh, two frantic swimmers, one trying to rescue the other, they will literally pull on each other, hold one down so the other can get air in those desperate moments. And so in lifeguard training, they made us go through this whole time where we had to practice getting just close enough with a healthy enough fear for their desperation to be saved and extend a long buoy. You know, those big, long tubes. They used to not have those. You used to just swim out and there's two people just desperately clinging to each other. But now there's an extension that demonstrates the healthy fear that we have to have in trying to rescue somebody. Because if you don't extend that, then the two of you can become contaminated and um, in a contagious sort of way, you can also fall into sin if you're not careful. Let's close this way. I said that you had to have mercy to give mercy. You have to receive mercy to be a merciful person. In Matthew 18, Peter came up to Jesus and said, how, how many times am I supposed to forgive my brother when he sins against me? I don't know if he's talking about Andrew, his real brother, right? There could have been a whole thing there, or it could have just been general, my brother in Christ. But Peter says, am I supposed to forgive him up to seven times if he, forget, if he sins against me in one day seven times? Am I supposed to forgive him that many times? And Jesus said to him, I don't say seven times, but seven, 70 times seven. Um, you're to forgive him up to 490 times. I don't think that meant 491. You're like off the hook. I think Jesus is just saying, you are to forgive him for an extended period of time when he sins against you. And then Jesus tells this parable. I won't read it all, but it's in Matthew 18 if you want to look it up later. But he tells a parable of a, of a master who is trying to settle all of his accounts. And in the process of settling his accounts, he comes to one guy who owes him a lot of money. And he comes to him and he says, I want you to pay back everything you owe. And if you don't, I'm going to sell your wife. I'm going to sell your kids. I'm going to take all your possessions. And I want everything you have in order to settle this massive debt that you've accrued with me. And the servant gets on his knees and begs him, please have mercy on me. Don't, don't do that. And it says he, he um, forgave him of his entire debt. And then that servant got up out of the office, walked out of the room uh, in the course of his you know, next period of time, walked up on another servant who owed him the equivalent of like $10 and said, pay what you owe me. And because the guy didn't pay him, he had him thrown in prison. And when all the other servants heard what happened, they told the master and the master called the first servant back in and said, didn't I forgive you of all that money that you owed me? And you couldn't have had an ounce of compassion for this guy who owed you so little? Why can't you have approached him with that same amount of mercy that I had on you? And then in anger, he said, you wicked servant. And he delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of his debts. And this is Jesus's point to Peter in regard to his question. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you don't forgive your brother from your heart. That's Jesus' point. Those of us, looking back in Jude in verse 2, those of us, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Those who have had mercy multiplied to us are now to be multipliers of mercy. In the end, next week we're going to read the doxology, to the one who extends mercy by keeping us blameless with glory and great joy. If God gives us mercy and will redeem us in mercy, 
then it's our obligation to each other to show mercy. Mercy with fear, mercy evangelistically, mercy uh, hating even the garment stained by the flesh, but mercy nonetheless. And it's my prayer that you would be a merciful people. That when people visit Ridgeline, they say, oh my gosh, that's a merciful group of believers. Man, do they love, they they love people and especially the broken ones. There is a compassion here that we don't find in other churches. And may the Lord make it so. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your example of mercy and grace, especially toward those who stumble, especially toward those who doubt, especially toward those who have been negatively influenced in the process of um, those false teachers who came into the church. We thank you that you have a stance of mercy and grace. We ask that you would apply this word to each of us in the way in which you have already been speaking. Maybe those who are struggling with doubts have found some some hope. Maybe those who have struggled with a legalistic, judgmental, self-righteous attitude can repent of their filthiness. Maybe those who have not seen themselves as Joshua the high priest uh, clothed in their own filthy garments of self-righteousness can throw themselves on the mercy of Jesus and be clothed in his righteousness alone. Oh, Father, would you take your word today? Would you apply it individually to those who are listening, both in the room and also people who are listening um, online as well? Would you apply your um, um, application to each of us as you would have us? Um, to put this into practice today. We thank you most of all that one of the attributes, one of the chief attributes of God is mercy, is hesed, a steadfast, passionate loyalty, even to those of his children who wander. Would you give us the grace and strength to remain in you, to stay within the love of Christ, to build ourselves up in our most holy faith, to pray in the Holy Spirit, and to wait for the mercy that will one day be displayed. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.